Welcome to the second wave of quarantine evidence-based radio yet again. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast wherever you particularly enjoy catching pods or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So, we have been talking about COVID for entirely too long, but we unfortunately need to keep doing it for another little bit. So we've been watching the possible effects of the BA1 COVID-19 variant. And one of the things we talked about last week was about how many of the so-called movers and shakers in Washington, D.C. were exposed to the virus recently. We now know that at least 72 of the over 600 people who attended the so-called gridiron dinner, all of them maskless and without exercising any kind of social distancing or precautions, have tested positive for COVID-19. This is part of a new wave of infections that are hitting over 20 states, along with the District of Columbia, where cases are ticking up over the last Cases have been ticking up over the last two weeks, with 10 states showing increases in hospitalizations. And of course, this is once again with a decrease in testing. Testing is down to less than 600,000 a day and continues to decline. Interestingly, it turns out that Nancy Pelosi was actually infected somewhere else, She didn't attend the gridiron dinner, which means that it's not the only locus of infection in the city. But again, interestingly, in the other half of the country, cases have actually continued to decrease. So while there is a bump from BA2 in some parts of the country, other parts of the country are still going down as if things are starting to level off. Overall, hospitalizations averaged around 15,000 per day in the past two weeks, with around 600 deaths per day. And while that's still way too many, it is around a 75% decrease from February at the height of the initial Omicron surge. Now, locally, though, Hampshire, Franklin, and Berkshire counties are all seeing increases In fact, all counties in the state have increased in the last 14 days. So once again, I continue to say that if you are at all worried about COVID-19, that you should continue to wear a mask, especially when inside public spaces with people you don't know, and to continue to social distance and do all of the things that you were doing before uh, people prematurely Uh, (laughs) declared victory. So I do want to talk about one more thing related to COVID-19 tonight, and then we are going to move on. So one of the symptoms of COVID-19 that has consistently been talked about is the loss of smell and subsequently of taste, uh, since a lot of your sense of taste is based on your sense of smell. It's been a mystery as to why exactly this was happening. 
Uh, so researchers were trying to find out if it was caused by damage from the virus uh, to the olfactory system itself, or was it the body's response to the virus that was causing the damage? Some data suggested that the virus could infect the olfactory neurons, but other studies didn't find the virus in post-mortem neurons. And so a new study conducted by pathologist Chengying Ho of Johns Hopkins University and her team looked specifically at the olfactory tissue from 23 patients who died with COVID-19. Nine of these patients had completely or partially lost their sense of smell and taste. The researchers looked at the olfactory neurons in the nasal mucosa, blood vessels, and the number of olfactory axons in each patient. So axons are part of the neurons that transmit electrical signals. They're generally at the end of the neuron. They also looked at possible damage to the olfactory bulb in the brain to see whether or not the virus was present there. Published in JAMA Neurology, the paper notes that they found there was not damage by the virus that was attacking the sense of smell, but rather the body's response through inflammation. And so this suggests that anti-inflammatory drugs may be able to help prevent the damage that, led, that leads to loss of smell. The researchers found that when compared to controls and to patients who had not lost their sense of smell or taste, they had more injuries to their navel, nasal mucosa, damage to their vasculature, and had reduced olfactory axons. Interestingly, the severity of the case of COVID-19 was not specifically linked to the loss of smell or taste. Some patients who had mild COVID-19 lost their sense of smell, while others who had severe COVID did not. The researchers only found SARS-CoV-2 viruses themselves in three patients, and only one of those patients was a person who had been reported to have lost their sense of smell. So that's a pretty strong idea that it was not the virus. And so the researchers actually conclude that, quote, olfactory pathology was not caused by direct viral injury. They go on to note that previous investigations that only relied on routine pathological ex examinations of tissue and not the in-depth and ultrafine analyses we conducted surmised that viral infection of the olfactory neurons and olfactory bulb might play a role in loss of smell associated with COVID-19, Ho said in a statement. But our findings suggest that SARS-CoV-2 infection of the olfactory epithelium leads to inflammation, which in turn damages the neurons, reduces the number of axons available to send signals to the brain, and results in olfactory bulb becoming dysfunctional. Now, Again, this is good news in some respects because it suggests that there may be a way to prevent or treat the loss of sense of smell using medications. If inflammation is the major cause of the injury in olfactory structures, it is possible that we might be able to use anti-inflammatory agents as a treatment, she said. That's what I hope that our study can inspire future studies to look into this. And of course, that is definitely worth doing because um, 
we definitely want to bring that under control. Mainly because while it may seem like a small issue to people who have a fully developed sense of smell and taste, losing one's sense of smell and taste can actually cause severe distress and can actually be harmful. Think of someone who has a gas stove or gas heating and can no longer smell if there is a leak, or a person who can't tell that there's smoke in another part of the building anymore. This is a thing that can really happen. Back in April of 2021, a survey by researchers from the Virginia Commonwealth University looked at the health risks of loss of smell and taste associated with COVID-19 infection, because again, this has been a reoccurring theme throughout the pandemic that one of the symptoms that people have reported in fairly large numbers, fairly disturbingly large numbers, frankly, is the loss of the sense of smell. So Evan Ryder, MD, Medical Director of the Smell and Taste Disorders Center at VCU Health, who is part of the team that created the survey, noted that that this loss can be an important part of the long-term health of those impacted by COVID-19. People who have had the smell have had smell or taste loss are exposed to these risks of having personal safety events, depression or reduced quality of life, writers said. So it's important for their healthcare providers to have real discussions with people about what they can or should do to compensate for their loss, whether it's short-term or long-term. The hope is that they can avoid some of these patient safety issues or nutritional issues due to food aversions. So that's one of the things, too, is that if you no longer enjoy the taste of food, you might stop wanting to have a variety of food, and therefore you might end up with just straight-up nutritional deficiencies. There's a whole host of ways in which losing the sense of smell and Uh, concurrently taste can have on people. So that was actually the number one thing that respondents noted. They overwhelmingly uh, ticked off the fact that they had a loss of enjoyment of food, which is not surprising. But they also uh, indicated that they enjoyed life less, had reduced appetite, felt depressed, and several other smaller effects. Only around 5% of respondents did not register any complaint at all. Now, the study offered some insight into the possibility of therapy to restore the senses. The researchers found that the only treatment that had possible success is called olfactory training therapy. And so, writer notes that it's very low risk low cost, and basically just involves smelling some selected essential oils. He select, he suggested clove, eucalyptus, rose, and lemongrass for the exercise. I can't say the proof is perfect, but they've shown in different ways that people who do smell training may have a higher likelihood of recovering from a post-viral olfactory loss, writer said. There is a possible issue with this as the sense of smell can come back 
but not be the same as it was. So there's a whole host of issues going on here. Um, it's, it's a really complex and uh, important topic that I don't think enough people have really thought about. You just think, oh, you know, the loss of sense of smell. But, um, you know, it's a thing that happens. But it can be a really complex and uh, interesting thing that happens. Um, this is the sort of second time that I've dived into this. The first time that I dived into this was after uh, the nasal swabs of the uh, homeopathic drug Zycam actually caused a bunch of people to have a loss of sense of smell because I believe it had too much zinc in it and the zinc actually burned their um, olfactory cells in their noses. And so um, I believe that's what it was. And I know that they had to take the product off the market for a while. Um, I know that I still see Zycam in some form in the... Um, in the uh, drugstore when I'm there. Uh, again, I would absolutely not recommend anything that is uh, homeopathic and things like airborne that were created by, you know, they, they say it like it's a, a badge of honor. Oh, it was created by a school teacher. Well, was that school teacher an epidemiologist or a uh, chemist or a medical doctor? No. Um, and the things that are in it are not anything proven to be helpful with colds. Um, so yeah, again, colds are one of those things that we still don't have a great handle on. And, uh, that is in some ways, I think, contributing to our interactions with this latest version of the coronavirus. Um, not that coronaviruses are the only viruses that cause cold. There's lots of adenoviruses as well and other things. But anyways, we are getting off topic. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, and so again, there is this issue that was also found in that other case where 45% of this set of respondents actually said they had some altered smell perception. These people reported what we call parosmias. So they smell their hamburger and it smells like cat litter, or they smell a milkshake and it smells like gasoline. That kind of distortion is really big and contributing to at least the loss of appreciation of food, and even in some people leading to food aversions, writer said. People lose their sense of smell altogether, but then as it comes back, it comes back in with this distortion, so it's that double-edged sword. And so, yeah, it's good to get your sense of smell back, but then if it's not comporting to what you expected, that can also be really stressful. So once again, COVID-19 is one of those things that is just really wrecking people. And uh, again, I still think that we should be practicing a lot more caution and continuing to have protocols that are a lot stricter than a lot of people have decided to do because even if you get a mild form of COVID-19, you can still lose your sense of smell and that can still lead to a lot of problems down the road. Um, 
I don't know the statistics specifically, but I know that there are cases of people who have literally committed suicide because they just didn't know what to do with themselves anymore because their sense of smell was gone and their appreciation for basically all of life uh, was affected by that. And so it's definitely not something to take lightly. But again, one of the good things about this, few, very, very few good things, is that it once again highlights a problem that has plagued many people without large amounts of international interest until now. So there's other reasons why you can also lose your sense of smell. And so uh, Daniel Coelho, MD, who is the lead author of the paper and a professor in the Department of Otolaryngology, which is head and neck surgery at the VCU School of Medicine, and Richard Costanzo, PhD, senior author, and the center's research director and professor emeritus in the Department of Physiology and Biophysics, have actually been working for a couple of years now on an implant device to restore the sense of smell. It's basically a kind of cochlear implant for the nose. And so they've actually done work on cochlear implants before, and now they're working on one for the sense of smell. While it may be some years out, we are working on a solution for those who might have long la longer lasting effects of smell loss, whether from COVID-19 or from other causes, Coelho said. And so called the olfactory implant system, it is currently in develop, development and they have a website and they have partnered with, I can't remember who it is. It's one of the tech guys who apparently has had lo a loss of scent um, or loss of smell. And so was like, yes, I would like you to research this. Please do. So that's always good um, to have actual research funds available to be able to do this kind of research. And so hopefully in the next couple of years, that might hit the FDA and might start to be approved. I don't know exactly how many people it would help, but it's still something nice to have in the arsenal because, you know, as I've really tried to hammer home, um, and I hope it isn't too heavy handed, this is a real deal. Um, think about when you have a really bad cold and you can't taste anything. Like even just having to deal with that can be really kind of upsetting. And so imagine not being able to eat anything. Uh, there was a, a quote that I didn't pull um, from someone who sat down at the dinner table one day and was eating pizza with his family. And he asked his family, does the pizza taste like cardboard to you? And they were like, no. And so he took a COVID-19 test and sure enough, he was positive for COVID-19. He didn't have any other symptoms and he still lost his sense of smell. Um, I'm not sure if his has come back yet. Some people have reported that over a few months, um, they were able to gain back some of their sense of smell. But I didn't see anyone who had reported that they had completely regained their sense of smell. And so it's really unfortunate. Okay, so let's move on and talk about another rosy subject. Not really, very much not really. 
we are going to talk about sex. And even though that does sound like a fun topic, we're actually going to be talking about the intersection of sex and antibiotic resistance. So isn't that fun? Oh, dear. Um, so fun fact, <laughs> sexual transmitted diseases are still very, very much a part of our, um, civilization, our, um, country, and it is something that is really hard to deal with sometimes because a lot of these things we thought that we had kind of had under control and then it turns out that we don't and even i was surprised at the number of for instance syphilis cases and not only syphilis cases for adults but congenital syphilis uh which is caused by a child being born to a mother who is infected with syphilis. So, uh, yeah, let's, let's take some time and talk about this. Um, actually I'm going to take this moment to take a break and, uh, we will come back and talk about this after we do some PSAs and some show promos, because it is going to take a little bit of time to talk about. So I will be right back in a moment. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly, and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, 
newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. And as uh, I noted before the break, we are going to be talking about STDs. And I think it's important to talk about this because, you know, I am reading a lot in the medical literature and all sorts of things. And even I didn't know some of this. So I think it's really important that we talk about it. So even though things like HIV AIDS is now able to be well controlled if you can access the medicine, uh, which is a completely other uh, <laughs> discussion for another day about the fact that we have the ability to treat it, but not everyone has the access to those treatments. But it can also uh, largely be prevented by taking PrEP, which is another really uh, great breakthrough. But Again, HIV AIDS is still with us, and other STDs are still very much with us. This includes chlamydia, gonorrhea, and again, even syphilis. And so in the past year, in fact, in the several past years, we have had record numbers of both syphilis and gonorrhea. And so again, in 2020, they both topped the most uh, number of cases since we have started recording them in modern times. And again, this included cases of life-threatening congenital syphilis found in newborn babies. The only disease that saw a decline was a slight dip in cases of chlamydia, but we'll actually come back to that and see if it holds up. While these three diseases are tracked by the CDC's surveillance program, HIV, hepatitis B, and hepatitis C cases are also tracked by different methods, but we're just going to be talking about the sort of big three, uh, syphilis, chlamydia, and gonorrhea right now. And so overall cases dropped from 2019, which represented the sixth year that they had reached a record high with 2.5 million cases in 2019 and 20 and 2.4 million cases in 2020. But again, that decrease is solely due to potential decreases in records of chlamydia. Cases of gonorrhea went from 616,392 in 2019 to 677,769 in 2020. 
Syphilis rose from 129,813 to 133,945 in the same time period. Time period. And once again, I cannot stress this enough, these are the highest numbers since the U.S. began modern tracking of the disease. Uh, as far as I can tell, in 1984, that's the first um, data set in on the NIH uh, CDC website. And so in 2020, 2,148 cases of congenital syphilis were also recorded. This represents a 45% increase for gonorrhea, a 53% increase for syphilis, and a staggering 235% increase for congenital syphilis, with only a 1.2% decrease in chlamydia. And as we have noted, even that decrease is questionable, because the pandemic caused a decrease in screenings during March and April of 2020 due to the fact that this was the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak. And so some of those people who might have had their annual physicals in that year didn't. And so they may have not uh, been counted and might have been infected. Almost all strains of these diseases are treatable with antibiotics at the moment, because as we know, we are currently losing that battle. And problematically, these diseases often cause no overt symptoms, and so they really require diagnosis through regular testing. And this is a big issue because not, despite not showing initial health problems in the infected, untreated gonorrhea and chlamydia can lead to permanent damage to the reproductive organs. And syphilis, we, you probably know a lot about the uh, issues with syphilis, is that it can hide out in the system for years and then come out years later and attack organs. It can even cause dementia. And so the famous uh, example of that is Al Capone, who did die, uh, as far as we can tell, of uh, tertiary syphilis, which was syphilitic uh, dementia. And so that is, of course, though, back in the days before we had the ability to treat these diseases with um, with antibiotics. And so we didn't have a good ability to do that at that point in time. And even though we do now, it is, uh, some of it is getting tenuous. Now, all three are dangerous to have while pregnant, especially syphilis, because of course, as we know, it can be transmitted to the infant. And in 2020, the researchers found that at least 149 congenital syphilis-related stillbirths and infant deaths were reported. The CDC suggests that nearly half of those could have been prevented with timely screening and intervention. And it doesn't look like it is going to get any better when the 2021 numbers come in. Now, we've been talking a little bit about antibiotic resistance, but gonorrhea is literally reaching a point where there are strains that are no longer treatable by antibiotics. The CDC estimates that around half of all infections are resistant to at least one antibiotic. 
Late in 2020, they actually changed tax and started to recommend that simple cases be treated with just a single shot of cetrifixone, cetriaxone. Ooh, drug names are not my strong suit. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, I'm sure that there's some of you out there who know how that's pronounced and you're groaning. I apologize. And so this still works against nearly all strains, but again, this is for the moment. And uh, that is actually probably a good strategy, though, because we talked recently about how a study showed that smaller doses of antibiotics can actually help prevent the development of resistance in some studies. And so, yeah. Now, when I say that there are strains of gonorrhea that are no longer treatable by antibiotics, it's a very small amount of people who have presented with those. So it's not like there's an entire population of people who are out there spreading it at the moment, at least that we know. And that is a big factor because a lot of this comes down to the fact, you know, I was saying earlier, they don't tend to have outward signs immediately. And so people could be carrying them. And if they're not getting tested, we don't know that they have them. And so really, this is another reason why people should be getting tested regularly. Um, I was talking to someone about this earlier uh, today, I think. And they said, you know, I don't understand how that's a thing. And I was like, well, if you, that's because you were raised in a place where you probably had good sex ed. And unfortunately, in a lot of this country, we do not teach proper sexual education to children because somehow we think that's going to lead to sex, even though every study that's ever been done on adolescents says that they're going to have sex whether you teach them about it or not. And the idea that we don't teach them about how to practice safe sex is this, we are, we are, uh, reaping what we have sown here, as far as I can tell. Um, this is something that has just been very much a kind of self-evident, self-prophesizing kind of, uh, situation where if you don't teach people how to not get STDs, uh, to tell them just to uh, just say no. Uh, we all know how well that campaign worked for uh, drug addiction, and we are now seeing just how well uh, abstinence-only education is working for the spread of STDs. And so, yeah. <laughs> So um, just in conclusion, we'll have a quote from the director of the STD prevention uh, at the CDC. Leandro Mena. And so they said the COVID-19 pandemic increased awareness of a reality we've long known about STDs, social and economic factors such as poverty and health insurance status, that's another big one, created barriers, increased health risks, and often result in worse health outcomes for some people, um, she said in her announcement of the 2020 data. If we are to make lasting progress against STDs in this country, 
we have to understand the, the systems that create inequities and work with partners to change them. No one can be left behind. And yeah, that's a, that's one I hadn't even really been thinking about is that, you know, we also have people who don't go to the doctor because they don't have any kind of health insurance that would allow them to do that. Because again, I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about that extensively because I'm just going to sound like a broken record. You all know, uh, obviously (laughs) how I feel about that. And I hope that you all feel the same way that we should have universal healthcare and that healthcare should be a right, not a privilege. Um, but anyways, (laughs) so, uh, Let's let's do a little bit of a deep dive, though, a deeper dive into gonorrhea, because obviously gonorrhea is the one that is of uh, sort of most concern when it comes to antibiotic resistance right now. They're all of concern, obviously. Uh, syphilis is a big one that's of concern because of the effects that it can have long term, while chlamydia and gonorrhea can affect the reproductive system. That is potentially very, um, very painful for the person, but, uh, syphilis can do a lot more, let's be frank, but we're going to talk about gonorrhea because there's frankly more to say about it at the moment. And so again, while they are extremely rare, there are indeed strains of the disease that are now incurable, but there may be some hope. A new set of studies and commentary in the Lancet Infectious Disease shows that a vaccine for meningococcal disease, 4CMNB, or Bexero, may be up to 40% effective against gonorrhea. Now, again, that might not seem so great. That might seem like a fairly low number, but it is suggested that it could prevent more than 100,000 infections in the UK over 10 years. And uh, that number is from the UK because there were three studies, one from the US and another, I think from, um, we'll talk about it in a second, but yeah, one in Australia um, that looked at the disease itself. And then there was a third study out of the UK that looked at the cost benefit ratio basically of, um, of inoculating people with this um vaccine. And so beyond this, it could be a good starting point for developing a vaccine that is more specific to the disease. There's more research going into that, Jonathan Merman, director of the CDC's National Center for HIV, Viral Hepatitis, STD, and TB Prevention, noted in a recent press conference but it does show at least some hope that in the future we could be developing effective and safe vaccines against gonorrhea, which would help us more successfully reverse some of the trends that we've been seeing over the past 10 years. Because again, over the past 10 years, over the time when those kids who were taught uh, abstinence-only education have become adults and have started uh, having sex just saying, we have seen big increases. Now, again, you may be wondering how a vaccine, for one thing, can help prevent against a seemingly completely different disease. 
because that seems a little bit odd. We've already talked about that with um, COVID, for instance, but it turns out that they are actually caused by related bacteria. So it is Neisseria meningitidis and Neisseria gonorrhoeae. Because the two bacteria share characteristics, the vaccine targets for one may also affect the other. Now, two case-controlled studies were done on the effectiveness of the vaccine. Again, one in the U.S. and one in Australia. Both looked at teens and young adults, which suggests that more study would need to be done on other populations. But let's be honest, that is a huge target group for transmission of the diseases, so it's a pretty good start. In the U.S., study, researchers looked at cases of both gonorrhea, chlamydia, and dual infection with both, with chlamydia cases serving as the control. They found around a 40% effectiveness for those who had had a two-dose regimen of the 4C-MEN-B vaccine and a 26% effectiveness for a single dose. In Australia, they found that the 4C-MEN-B was around 33% effective. With a gonorrhea-specific vaccine likely to take years to develop, a key question for policymakers is whether the, meningin- the meningitis vaccine, 4C-MEN-B, should be used against gonorrheal infection, lead author of the modeling study Peter White of Imperial College London said in a statement. Our analysis suggests that giving the vaccine to those at the greatest risk of infection is the most cost-effective way to avert large numbers of cases. So again, that's from the uh, English study that looked at the sort of, uh, will this save us money in uh, healthcare costs, which is, you know, the least important of the three studies, obviously, because in my, in my idea, it is much more important. Will this actually help people? <laughs> Um, rather than how much money will it save us. But I do know that we live in a, in a, uh, we live in a time when, you know, people do worry about the cost. Um, but I think that it is still really good and important to try and get people vaccinated for this in order to help not only with men- with meningitis, because partially it's that people should be getting this uh, vaccine in order to prevent meningitis. So I remember um, I used to see commercials for it late at night where they talk about how, you know, kids in college can die of meningitis if they haven't had this vaccine. So we should be giving people this vaccine just because it's good for them Um for preventing meningitis, but also if it has this added effect, that's amazing. And even if it's only a small added effect, these small numbers can have big consequences in large populations. So yeah, I think that that is a very cool idea to kind of push out this vaccine, not only for meningitis, but also for gonorrhea. Okay. So that was a lot. <laughs> let's let's be perfectly honest. That was a lot. Um, and so now I wanted to switch gears and quickly talk about something that is just, 
like chef kiss, uh, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it is uh, pretty exciting. I giggled a lot when I first read it. Uh, and so we have talked about this before, and it is the subject of NFTs. And I'm just going to just just going to put this out here for a second, and then we're going to move on and talk about the physics of liquids. Uh, so have no fear. But uh, it turns out that an NFT of the first Twitter post uh, by Jack Dorsey was bought by Malaysia-based entrepreneur Sina Estavi for $2.9 million last year. And he is now attempting to sell it. Uh, he was hoping to get $48 million for the NFT uh, and give, quote unquote, some of it to charity. but. The high bid after a week, um, and as of the last day or so, is just under $10,000. Oh, it warms my heart. <laughs> I am truly hoping that people are waking up to the fact that the blockchain is not a problem-solving system, but rather a system of smoke and mirrors that favors the wealthy just as much, if not more, than fiat currency does, because at least there's regulation of some sort in the fiat currency world. One can only hope. Uh, and so that combined with the fact that the feds are now moving in and starting to crack down on some of the scamming that's going on there, I'm really hoping that the blockchain will start being something that people remember as a really wacky idea that uh, took hold for a couple of years and then fizzled out because it is a giant, giant scheme that is rigged for the wealthy, just like fiat currency. And not only that involves a lot of people being able to suck a lot of people's data out and use it in algorithms against them uh, very easily. And um, so, yeah, I quipped earlier today to someone else, if Peter Thiel is involved, I would suggest running. <laughs> and so, yeah, I definitely uh, am not on board with the uh, dystopian future that blockchain wants to create. All right. So like I said, we were just going to talk about that for a second because I saw that headline and I had to share. So again, we are going to switch to some more hard science or hard science in a sense, because we're going to talk about liquids. This is one of those places where it's amazing how much we both know and don't know about the natural world. So for well over a century, scientists have sought a way to describe the vibrational density of states for liquids. Alessio Zaccone of the University of Milan and Matteo Baglioli of the Universidad Autonoma de Madrid published a paper in PNAS in 2021 outlining an equation for the vibrational density of states which elegantly solved the problem of obtaining the distribution of the complex energy states of liquids. So that's a lot already. So this is a long pull quote, but I think that when we're talking about physics, it's best to let the physics 
physicists talk themselves. Because me trying to rewrite it uh, is going to be hard for me and potentially garble some of it for uh, both of us. So this is a quote from uh, the paper. Um, Sorry, I think it's a quote from one of the authors of the paper. One of the most important quantities in the physics of matter is the distribution of the frequencies or vibrational energies of the waves that propagate in the material. It is particularly important as it is the starting point for calculating and understanding some fundamental properties of matter, such as specific heat and thermal conductivity and the light-matter interaction, said Professor Zaccone on the University of Milan website. The big problem with liquids is that, in addition to acoustic waves, there are other types of vibrational excitations related to low energies of the disordered motion of atoms and molecules, excitations that are almost absent in solids. These excitations are typically short-lived and are linked to the dynamic chaos of molecular motions, but are nonetheless very numerous and important, especially at low energies. Mathematically, these excitations, known as instantaneous normal modes, or INMs, in the specialized literature, are very difficult to deal with as they correspond to energy states described by imaginary numbers. Who boy. <laughs> so basically, what all that means is that there are these excitations that are part of the system of energy movement in liquids that are hard to pin down, basically. And it's, so it's been a real challenge to find a mathematical way to describe them properly because they deal with imaginary numbers. And if you haven't taken advanced math, which frankly I haven't, um, imaginary numbers are one of those things that you probably are thinking, oh goodness, uh, what on earth does that mean? And so basically that's, that's the correct response here because it's been a real challenge. <laughs> and so not only have they finally come up with this equation, but what's even better is that the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organization has reported that they have run an experiment to validate the newly published universal law for liquids. The time-of-flight neutron spectrometer Pelican at Anstow's Center for Neuron Scattering has found that there is indeed a linear relationship of the vibrational densities of states with frequency at low energies, just as predicted by the formula, which is really good news. And even more amazingly, they did this during the COVID lockdown, when they were unable to actually run new experiments on the Pelican. So they had to basically do this from data they already had. The team included University of Wollongong PhD candidate Caleb Stamper, as well as David, Dr. David Cordy and Dr. Zhengzhi Yu, both of ANSTO. They used past experimental data and looked at it from a fresh angle. The exercise not only achieves such a great outcome, but also provides a good introduction of neutron spectroscopy to Caleb, 
who has done an excellent job, said Dr. Yu as Caleb's ANSTO supervisor and the corresponding author of the paper. So that's pretty awesome. That's some pretty fantastic uh, post-grad uh, work there, or um, PhD candidacy work, I guess you would say. And so, yeah, that's that's pretty cool to be able to help in confirming a new universal law. That is nothing to shake a stick at. And so the work should also help address questions related to phase transitions in superionic liquids in work on thermoelectric materials. Major challenges arise because liquids are not mechanically stable, as the atoms in a liquid diffuse, and the liquid as a whole will flow, explained Dr. Cordy. The new universal law is based on a theoretical framework called instantaneous normal modes, which prescribe a set of instantaneous forces, frequencies, and velocities as quantities. Problems arose in trying to derive a theory because of a small presence of what are called imaginary modes. Imaginary modes are important because they represent the fact that a liquid is not stable. The atoms in a liquid are strongly interacting with one another all the time, but not in the same way as a solid does. The relationship is not harmonic, meaning that the atoms are not going to be restored to the same configuration after an interaction. The atoms will continue to diffuse quickly and slide past each other, said Stamper. Dr. Yu compared it to a surfer on an ocean wave. The atoms in the liquid follow the curve of the wave itself, but the atom can be in a position on the crest, under the surfboard, or in the trough. Always moving, said Dr. Yu. The law will play for liquids the same pivotal role in the that the Debye law plays for solids. It will serve as the foundation for the whole research field involving liquids and beyond. So yeah, that's not too shabby. <laughs> I think that's a pretty impressive uh, pedigree for it. And so while you and I might not understand it completely, I'm, I understand most of it, but, um, you know, I was just watching a video again this morning about something about quantum states and goodness gracious, quantum uh, physics is hard to understand sometimes when you get down to those atomic levels, it's just, it's hard. It's very hard. So um, I think that the important sort of pulls from this is that they have figured out something really hard and important because, you know, a lot of this stuff is really important for material sciences. And so that's part of where you start talking about thermomaterials and all sorts of other uh, applications in material sciences. And so hopefully this will definitely be a game changer in that area. Okay, we are going to finish tonight with a, uh, we're actually going to pivot back to medicine. MIT engineers have devised a new telerobotic system, which will help surgeons to treat patients having a stroke or aneurysm, even if that doctor is hundreds or thousands of miles away. Using a modified joystick, surgeons can control a robotic arm and safely operate on a patient during a critical window of time that can determine whether the patient will survive and preserve their brain function. 
This period is usually called the golden hour. The robot, which is controlled with magnets, would help with endovascular intervention. This is a procedure in which a wire is inserted in the area where a clot is and either physically clears the blockage or delivers clot-busting drugs. As with any brain surgery, this is a procedure that requires particular skill and care. And so the MIT team hopes that the robotic system could be installed in smaller hospitals, which would then connect to larger medical centers. The system consists of a medical-grade robotic arm with a magnet on its wrist. Using live imagery and the joystick, an operator can adjust the orientation of the magnet to help guide a soft and thin magnetic wire through arteries and vessels. We imagine instead of transporting a patient from a rural area to a large city, they could go to a local hospital where nurses could set up the system. A neurosurgeon at a major medical center could watch live imaging of the patient and use the robot to operate in the golden hour. That's our future dream, said Xuan He Zhao, a professor of mechanical engineering and of civil and environmental engineering at MIT. And so the trial not only showed that the wire could be moved around by the robotic arm, but showed that all parts of the surgery could be accomplished. The neurosurgeons who were asked to uh, test it out took only an hour to learn the system. And so that is pretty impressive. And also it can help for uh, in-place surgery. And so um, neuroscientists themselves can be helped because they're generally exposed to x-rays when they're in the same space as the uh, patient. And so the neurosurgeons can operate the robot in another room or even in another city without repeated exposure to x-rays, Zhao said. We are truly excited about the potential impact of this technology on global health, given that stroke is one of the leading causes of death and long-term disability. So yeah, this is pretty excellent. They were able to get it to do everything that you could do with a normal surgery while someone's actually in the room. So yeah. Okay. That is all the time we have for tonight. Thank you for listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.